Why is it that Americans have a fascination with royalty, especially at Christmas time? Movie makers like Hallmark, Netflix, and Ion have created a whole genre of films around royals, romance, and the Christmas season. Here's a sampling of titles for you. A Christmas in Royal Fashion, A Prince for Christmas, A Crown for Christmas, Christmas at the Palace, A Princess for Christmas, A Royal Queen's Christmas, Royally Ever After, and The Night, the K-N-I-G-H-T, Before Christmas. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Trust me, there are many, many more. At Christmas, this tends to happen to women for some reason. They put on their flannel PJs. You can't do this without flannel pajamas. They pour a cup of eggnog. They fix some figgy pudding, whatever that is. And then they nestle under a lot of blankets on the couch, and they watch these cheesy, predictable, corny, yet irresistible movies. Has this happened to you? And wow, how times have changed. Just 250 years ago, this country hung a king in effigy. England's king, Prince George, was our public enemy number one. Today, William and Kate's son, Prince George, is adored by Americans. Every month, 700,000 Instagram hashtags and 200,000 Google searches contain his name. I guess we have always had a love-hate relationship with kings and with princes. And this describes God's attitude toward Israel's infatuation with a king. It, too, was a love-hate thing. On the one hand, God hated the motive behind the idea of a king. Rather than trust him, the Jews wanted to be like other nations. And they wanted to follow a king that they could see. Their first king, Saul, was a concession to their lack of faith. He looked apart. But oh, he lacked the heart. And Saul ended up a disaster. Under his reign, Israel lost land to the Philistines. Saul ended up dying, falling on his sword. In contrast, the second king of Israel was handpicked by God. The Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. God delighted in David, and David delighted in God. Like all men, David had his flaws, but he was a man full of faith. And full of love for God. After God rejected Saul, the prophet Samuel was sent to the house of Jesse to select the king's replacement. And Samuel should have expected a surprise, especially after God laid out the criteria for his selection. For God told him, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. Remember, Saul had been all about appearance. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, Jesse called his sons together for the big interview. Samuel went down the row, waiting on God's nudge. This is the one. When none of Jesse's seven sons passed muster, the prophet asked the old man if there are any other candidates. Jesse replied, 
There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And that's when the Lord told Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13 describes the cool thing that happened next. Samuel took the horn of oil. I mean, think a ram's horn full of oil, probably a quart or more of olive oil. And he anointed him in the midst of his brothers. The old prophet, he emptied out that horn full of olive oil onto the head of David. The kid brother would be the king. And we're told, the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. From then on, God's presence and his power clung to David like that thick, gooey olive oil. You know, it's interesting, this anointing with oil became the Israeli oath of office. Our newly elected president here in the United States puts his hand on a Bible. A new king in Israel, though, was anointed with oil. A ram's horn brimming with olive oil was poured over his head. It was a symbol of God's spirit that the king would need the Holy Spirit to govern wisely. And all of Israel's future kings went by this title, the anointed one. See, God hated the initial reasoning behind the Jews' request for a king, but he loved and then blessed and anointed the one that he appointed to the role. In a sense, a horn of oil begins the Christmas story. You know, we drink eggnog or apple cider at Christmas time, or we put peppermint cream in our coffee. Oh, but the true Christmas libation is olive oil. Christmas began with the anointing of David. As Isaiah puts it here in Isaiah 11, a rod, a shoot came from the stalk of Jesse. A bud began to grow from the stump. The Spirit of God came upon a new branch in mankind's family tree. Most of us trim an evergreen tree to start our Christmas, but God also trimmed a tree. He selected a family tree, a family tree of Jesse, and he trimmed it with promise and with possibilities. When the time came for David to take the throne, the warmongering Philistines were on a rampage. They'd invaded from the west to take most of the mountains of Israel. And yet David drove the enemy back into the sea and unified the 12 tribes. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 1 sums up his conquest. The Lord had given David rest from all his enemies all around. And that's when one day, as David took a leisurely stroll across the portico of his exquisite palace, he surveyed Jerusalem's skyline, and he noticed an inconsistency. The king was carrying on affairs of state in this palatial mansion, while the worship of God was being conducted in a rustic tent. And David thought, this just isn't right. See, the king knew that God, the true God, overflows the heavens. But his abode on earth, a tent, was not in keeping with his glory. A few animal skins over bronze poles just didn't cut it. If the idols of the nations around him had magnificent temples dedicated in their honor, why not the God of Israel? David was concerned when foreign ambassadors 
visited Jerusalem, what was called the holy city. They saw the king in a palatial mansion while God was in a pup tent. It was an insult to the Almighty. David wanted to build God a house. But when he asked God for permission, God refused him. David was the king, no less. And yet God denied him a building permit. David went on to purchase the property and quarry the stone and cut the cedar and gather the gold and recruit the artisans. He made all the logistical preparations for a temple. But God said no to David building him a house. Instead, God promised to build David a house. And this is just like our gracious and wonderful God. David wants to do God a favor, but instead, God does David a favor. And more than just a favor, God promised to David. His promise would change the course of history. God's promise to David would rescue earth from the clutches of Satan. For God promises David not a literal house, but a political house, a royal house. A dynasty of descendants who will rule God's people forever. Realize Saul's son died with him in battle. But David would not only see his son succeed him, God looked far into the future. And he assured King David that he would always have a son sitting on his throne. Eventually an eternal son ruling an eternal kingdom. Today we speak of the British monarchy as the house of Windsor, well, God promised David that Israel and eventually all the universe would be ruled over by a member of the house of David. How's that for trimming a branch on a family tree? It was the prophet who delivered news to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, it was the prophet Nathan who told him, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A seed would come from David's body, a flesh and blood heir, a son will reign over Israel and build a temple. In verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7, God speaks of the special relationship he'll have with these kings. He says, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. God stripped the kingdom from Saul and gave it to another but not so with David's heirs. God will chasten them when needed, but never completely reject them. Of course, the immediate fulfillment of this promise was David's son Solomon. When David died, Solomon succeeded him on the throne. This new king was the wisest and richest man of his day. Solomon built God a glorious temple, and God made Israel great among the nations. Oh, but it didn't take long before the house of David needed the correction that God had promised. For toward the end of his life, David's son Solomon strayed from God. He trusted in his wealth, 
and he multiplied foreign wives, 700 wives and 300 concubines, which makes you wonder, how did the wisest man on earth end up with a thousand mother-in-laws? I suppose we'll never know. But Solomon's pagan wives led him and the nation of Israel into idolatry. And this was just the beginning of their downfall. After Solomon, it was a slippery slope indeed. Of the 39 kings who would rule Israel and Judah over the next 345 years, only eight would make any attempt at all to obey or seek after the one true God. From the wicked Ahab to the evil Manasseh, most of these kings mocked God. And according to the covenant, God disciplined the house of David with a series of spankings. When the kings strayed too far from God's law, God would raise up a foreign army to attack and subjugate his people. The final blow came in 586 BC when the armies of Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem, eventually sacking the city and burning Solomon's glorious temple to the ground. It wasn't just a trimming. God severely pruned Israel's family tree down to the very root, a mere sprout. In fact, if you flip back a chapter, Isaiah chapter 10, it compares the demise of Judah to the fall of another great kingdom, the Assyrians. And Isaiah speaks of it metaphorically as the clearing of a forest. In Isaiah 10, verse 33, he writes, Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop off the bow with terror. Those of high structure, stature will be hewn down, and the haughty will be humbled. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Hey, this implies some very, very serious tree trimming. You know, I gain a new appreciation for Israel's, for Isaiah's imagery here of Israel every time I have trees taken down in my yard. I live in a pine forest, and from time to time I have to thin out the forest. And we've had huge, really tall pine trees taken out of our yard. And it's always a spectacle the day it happens. I call into professionals, Wayne and his crew. I get a nice tea, sit down on the deck in a nice little reclining chair and watch the amazing operation take place. First, a climber with spikes on his shoes. Wish I could do this. He climbs up the tree, lopping off limbs as he goes. When he reaches the top, all that's left under him is this naked stick of wood. So he comes back down, cutting five-foot logs as he goes. And when those logs fall, man, they slap the ground hard. When they hit, it sounds like thunder. The house and the deck I'm sitting on starts to shake. It's amazing that trees so mighty and so dominant are suddenly no more. They're now nothing but stumps. And that was the plight of Assyria. And that was the plight of Israel and Judah. 2 Chronicles 36, verses 15 and 16 tell us, And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them. 
because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Have you ever read sadder words? But there was no remedy? God tried to warn his people, but they only got in deeper. And to wake them up, it took drastic measures. Enter God's judgment, his instrument of judgment, the feared Babylonians. 2 Kings chapter 25 tells the story of Zedekiah, the last of the Jewish kings. You could say the last full limb of the family tree. After capturing Jerusalem, the Babylonian general murdered Zedekiah's sons before his very eyes. And then he plucked out King Zedekiah's eyes with a hot iron. So that the last sight the king saw was the slaughter of his own sons. What a terrible torture. Zedekiah was chained and he was taken to Babel. There the Jews spent 70 years in exile in divine time out before God allowed them to return to their homeland. There is a military strategy known as scorched earth where the invading army destroys everything its enemy might ever use to survive. Crops are burned and wells are poisoned. Railroad tracks and airports get demolished. Even potential soldiers are exterminated. This was Stalin's strategy against Germany in World War II. It was the Union General Tecumseh Sherman's approach against the Confederates on his march to the sea. And this more or less describes the tactics used against the Hebrews by the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C., scorched earth. Imagine your property burned to a crisp. The green fields are now black. Shrubs and bushes have nothing on their branches. The trees are now charred timber. This was both the physical landscape and figuratively it was the spiritual landscape that Judah left when they were taken into exile and what welcomed them when they returned home. When Jerusalem was sacked and the temple burned and Zedekiah tortured and captured, Many of the Jews despaired of God's promises, but thoughtful Jews, they remembered Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Under the surface of all this devastation and bleakness, there was still hope. For just below ground level, There was a root still alive, still growing in the soil, getting ready to break into the surface. Underneath the devastation and the heartache and the loss was a green shoot of promise. It wasn't even a limb, just a stem, he calls it, but it was alive and it was growing. It was coming. The fire had been unable to stop this sprout. Everything else was charred to a crisp except that root. But that root was moist and green. This was the stem that nothing could kill. This was the indestructible branch. 
Recall God's promise to David. His sons would be disciplined but never deserted. God had said, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever. God even used a personal pronoun. He said specifically, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Check this out. The stem was a hymn. The bud was a bud. There were faithful Jews who still had held to this promise that God made to David, that a shoot would grow from his stem, that a branch would come from his roots, that a seed would come from his loins, who would be an eternal king and who would reign over an eternal kingdom. And guess what they named this promised king? As heir to David's throne, surely God would anoint him just as he had done David. He would use a horn of oil. Thick, gooey oil was headed for his head. And thus the Jews called this much anticipated, this eternal king, the anointed one. In Hebrew, it's the word Messiah. In Greek, it's the word Christ, Christos. And in English, it's Christ. Realize When you're adorning your Christmas tree this year, Christmas is the story of God trimming a tree. It's about a family tree that gets pruned due to its own sin, pruned to its root, but that root returns. That little stem that's left comes back and sprouts again. Christmas is about the tenacity of God's promises. His relentless intent to fulfill all his promises to you. Don't forget that. You know, a calorie pear is a full foliage tree with beautiful white blossoms. One such tree has been growing near Building 5 of the World Trade Center since the 1970s. But like all the trees in the area, the explosions and the collapsing towers of September 11, 2001, buried this tree under a mountain of metal and debris, and rubble. A month later, after the explosions, a cleanup worker found this tree. It was smashed and pinned between slabs of concrete. The top of the tree had been lopped off. The rest of the eight-foot trunk was burnt and charred. Its roots were broken. The damaged tree had only one living branch. Initially, the folks thought that there was no hope for this pear tree. But the Ground Zero crew asked a parks employee to give it a chance. It was taken to a nursery in the Bronx. The arborists there were equally skeptical. But once the charred bark had been cut off and the roots had been trimmed back and the tree had been planted in some rich soil, it started to grow again. And they gave it a name. They called it the Survivor. And yet this Survivor tree was still to be tested. For in the spring of 2010, a storm with 100-mile-per-hour winds ripped the tree out of the ground. Again, it was damaged. And once more, the nursery workers questioned whether it would make it. Somehow it did. And today, the survivor tree is part of the 9-11 memorial in New York City. And yet, when first introduced to the park, some people objected. For it's unlike all the other trees there. 
It's ugliness, or I guess you could say it's uniqueness sticks out. And it was planted so that its traumatized side faces the public so you can see what it's been through. And to me and to others, the survivor tree has now become a vital symbol. Its doggedness and its resilience reminds us that the roots of freedom and courage can never be extinguished. Now each year, the New York Parts Department gives seedlings. They send seedlings from the survivor tree to three communities who have also suffered a recent tragedy. The seedlings remind those weary people not to give up. And this is what Isaiah is saying here of God's faithfulness. When he refers to the Messiah as the one green stem that rises from the ashes. Jesus is the root of Jesse that could be trimmed but never killed. And that root is coming. When all hope seems lost, after our enemy has charred and blown through and broken and crumbled what we valued, be assured, God's promises never fail. For God has a man, a king, an anointed one, a Messiah, who is well-rooted to stand up to our storms. And yet with all God's promises, there is a challenge. And that's the waiting. You know that's the challenge when it comes to God's promise. You have to wait on them. They never really come and are fulfilled in the same season that they're given. There's always a wait between the giving of the promise and the receiving of it. And imagine waiting 600 years, six centuries for the Christ. That's how long God waited for Jesse's root to sprout. For a descendant to ascend. After the Babylonians dethroned Zedekiah, no other son of David dared rule over Israel and the Jews. After Malachi, even the voice of God's prophets became mute. The period following the Babylonian exile leading up to the first century is now known by scholars of biblical history as the silent years. There was a wait. Reminds me of those times in my childhood, some of you old enough to remember the old Apollo space missions, the moon shots. You know, it was exciting to follow the lunar landings on television, your black and white set. And talk about suspense. A man on the moon, you're kidding. But there was always one terrifying moment. It occurred as the astronauts re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. There was a communications blackout. It lasted just minutes, but oh, oh, how it felt like an eternity. This is Houston. Do you read me? Four minutes of static before they responded. But it felt like four hours. Oh, the waiting was torture. So imagine... A 600-year communications blackout. That's how long it took for believers in God's promise to regain visible contact with David's descendant. If you had just been looking on the surface, above ground, so to speak, you would have wondered what had happened to God's promise to David. The spiritual landscape in Israel 
was charred and bleak and burnt and barren. The royal tree had been reduced to a root, a mere shoot. But God had not abandoned his promise. A root grows underground. And God was working under the radar. God had gone off the grid to build his kingdom. And this is what God does. Even today, this is often his strategy. At times, God dives deep. Oh, he's still moving. God is still grooving, perhaps more so, but not where we can see. And this is why to walk with Jesus, it requires belief. It requires faith. Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please him. See, the silence you're experiencing today, the communications blackout that you're in, is really just a test of your faith. Before Jesus is the lily of the valley, before he is the rose of Sharon, he is a root of Jesse. Before the promise blossoms upward, our faith has to go downward. Oh, we like lilies and roses, but first we have to cling tightly to a root. This is why the most important 12 words in the Christmas story are the first 12 words of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the heir to these promises. Read that and think Isaiah 11, verse 1. The root has now broken soil. Love has just sprouted. Both Matthew and Luke trace the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed, back to King David. Jesus is the stem on the family tree that will now sit on David's throne and rule forever and save his people forever. I love this picture here in Isaiah 11. Jesus as a root. You know, a root isn't the glamorous part of the plant. Imagine giving your girl root ball, flowers with root balls still attached. She wouldn't be that impressed, would she? Oh, they're ugly. But there'd be no flowers without that root. And there would be no salvation without God's promise to David of a root of Jesse. Planted a thousand years earlier, trimmed through judgment and war and devastation, but always there still growing below the surface. That's why these opening words of Matthew are so encouraging to us. The root that had endured crisis after crisis and hung on for so long was now ready to bear fruit. It parallels our Christmas tradition. You know, we start Christmas by going to the farm, or in our case, the attic, the basement, we pick out a nice spruce. Ours is sort of artificial, but it, it does. It works well. We, we bring it into the living room. We trim it with lights and ornaments. It's beautiful. And then the grand unveiling takes place. And that's what occurred the first Christmas. The buried, almost forgotten promise of a Savior finally broke through. After the first few days of our Israel tour, the Bible comes to life for most people. 
Verses you've read your whole life are now seen in a fresh light, just having been there for a few days. You start to connect the dots, and you see the bigger picture. And everyone always asks me the same question. Pastor Sandy, with all the archaeological and the geographical and the historical evidence around them, why don't the Israelis embrace the prophecies and accept Jesus as their Messiah? And it's a good question. And I have two answers. The simplest explanation is Romans 11 verse 25. Blindness in part has happened to Israel. Rather than a host of rational reasons, Paul just chalks it up to spiritual blindness. The devil wants to keep God's people in the dark and he works overtime to do so. It's a spiritual battle. But there is another answer to that question. When Jesus came the first time, he wasn't the kind of Messiah that the rabbis and the scholars anticipated. They weren't looking for a root. A grassroots Messiah was not on their radar. No, they were hoping for someone who would lay down the law, who would crush his enemies, who would rule from top down, who would seize control and impose his will. Like the Jews of old, they wanted a king, a liberator who would end the Roman oppression and launch a golden age. In fact, there was a time in Jesus' ministry when the Jews tried to force him to be king. He refused. And at that point, went underground, off the grid for a time. For Jesus was a root. In many ways, he conducted his ministry humbly and lowly in a down-to-earth manner. Do do you recall the kid in your school everyone called Stumpy? Do do you remember Stumpy? (laughs) Every school had a Stumpy. He was usually the short kid, thick legs. Well, Stumpy, that's what he was. But in a real sense, Jesus is Stumpy. He is Isaiah calls him a root. Rather than an intimidating and an overawing persona, Jesus was down to earth and solid and unassuming and relatable. Jesus was a king, and he talked much about a kingdom, but there was a disconnect between he and his listeners. For what Jesus spoke of was not the prevailing expectation among the Jews. See, one day the Jews asked him, where is this kingdom you talk about? And Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. In other words, it's not about what you can see. Nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. From the start, Jesus intended for his kingdom, his movements, his machinations, his victories to be a low profile, to avoid the limelight. This is why he told his disciples, don't tell anybody. He stayed under the radar. He was building something spiritual, not physical. See, the phrase root of Jesse not only speaks to Jesus' pedigree, but it tells us that he intended to be root-like in how he did business and built his kingdom. Christianity is the ultimate grassroots movement. Remember the guidelines that God gave to Samuel in choosing a king? They helped to identify 
his heir. He says, the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And Jesus is all about the heart. He taught us that real righteousness and real worship come from the heart. Rather than rule from a throne, Jesus wants to rule in our hearts. Jesus is the king of hearts. Unlike the world we live in, Jesus operates from the inside out, from the bottom up, by wooing, not imposing. He draws us. He doesn't drive us. Like David, he is a different kind of king. He's a root. And because of the spiritual nature of his kingdom, Jesus gets stuff done by his spirit. Isaiah writes, For the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. As the horn of olive oil was poured on David's head, the gooeyness of God's spirit covered Jesus in every way. And I love how the Holy Spirit is like olive oil, any type of vegetable oil. You know, if you, were, if you cook, it's gooey and it's tacky and it's thick and syrupy. It doesn't come off easily when you get it on your hands. It gets into crevices. It saturates and permeates deeply. And this is how Jesus rolled. His works were undeniable and memorable and moved folks deeply. Jesus never left anyone unaffected. In fact, this verse, Isaiah 11 verse 2, explains a difficult New Testament text that we're going to get to in a few weeks. I want you to remember this. Revelation, the revelation of Jesus, begins with a greeting from the Trinity. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 reads, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's God the Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, that's God the Son. So the Father greets you. Jesus greets you. But the seven spirits greet you? And this is confusing. There's just one Holy Spirit, and yet Isaiah comes to the rescue. For Isaiah 11 also speaks of the one Holy Spirit, but he reveals him in seven ways. He is the Spirit, one of the Lord, two of wisdom, three of understanding, four of counsel, five of might, six of knowledge, and seven of the fear of the Lord. There are seven manifestations of this one Spirit. It's interesting, the menorah. The light of the world, the seven-branched lampstand that shined from Israel's temple, it had seven stems. One lamp was on the center vertical branch. The other six lamps were at the end of three U-shaped branches. And this corresponds with Isaiah's configuration. Here in chapter 11, the menorah was a symbol of God's Spirit, central to his identity. At the heart of his identity, he is the Spirit of the Lord followed by three couplets. He is the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Put it all together, and here's a listing of the very first essential oils. 
These are the traits that God's Spirit brought to Jesus and that he also brings to us. For even today, God conveys these traits to his followers by his Spirit. You can't build a spiritual kingdom without the Spirit. The anointing still flows. Jesus is building a spiritual kingdom rather than imposing a physical rule. Rather than enforcement, Jesus relies on influence, which means his government can be ignored. It can be resisted. Or it can just be missed by carnal people who fail to tune into his spirit. His presence isn't always felt. His wisdom isn't always known. Sadly, his might isn't always seen. And his counsel isn't always taken. Jesus doesn't force himself on people. Today, Jesus still traffics in the spiritual realm. Thus, faith and open hearts are required to perceive and receive his work. But his influence is still strong. His roots still grow deep. His impact is still thick and tacky and syrupy and gooey. Even underground, Jesus has an enormous effect. I want to close this morning by having you check out my driveway. That's six-inch concrete, by the way. And yet over time, it cracked and it crumbled. Do you know why? <laughs> you know. There were roots running underneath that concrete. But even a root can push from the underside with great force. A root can break and remake and reshape what's on the surface. Though not seen, roots are powerful, powerful change agents. A strong root like Jesus can break up even the hardest heart. So this Christmas, let's remember we serve a root of Jesse. He's not always seen. But from the inside out, Jesus is working in lives today to break up our pride and to remake us into something beautiful and godly. Like the trimming of a Christmas tree, Jesus adorns our lives with the seven ornaments of his spirit, his presence, his wisdom and understanding, his counsel and might, his knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I hope you'll let God decorate your life with the Spirit of Jesus. Let the living Lord take root in you this Christmas.